Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we welcome you to Hollywood and Levine. I'm Ken Levine, your podcast host. This week, part two of my two-part interview with documentary filmmaker John Scheinfeld. If you missed part one after you listen to this, go back and check that out. Uh, A fascinating subject and a very interesting guy. This is John Scheinfeld, part two on Hollywood and Levine. It's one of the problems with doing a documentary about uh, a musician, a recording star, that you have to get the music rights. <laughs> uh, oftentimes, clearing music is the bane of my existence. Uh, uh, you would be absolutely correct. Um, in a movie, in a TV show, in a documentary, anytime you license a song, you end up having to pay multiple times you have to pay the writers of the song that's called publishing you have to pay the artist and the record label um, for the master recording uh, and that's called sync and um, they can really charge you whatever they want and so the the task for a documentary filmmaker is to be as creative as possible Uh, and to make the best deal possible. Um, One of the things that figures in this world is something called MFN, which is Most Favored Nations, which means if you're paying the music publisher something, the label and the artist get the same amount. Um, And so if somebody is insisting on a super high price, you know you're going to have to pay the same thing to the other party. And so sometimes that'll kill a deal. Or sometimes it can make a deal. Um, I was making this film uh, some years ago about Chicago's love affair with the Chicago Cubs. And I wanted to close the film with something big and anthemic. And uh, there was a Bruce Springsteen song that I wanted to use called Land of Hope and Dreams. Big song, great song. Uh, So I wrote a very passionate letter to his manager, who I did not know. And say, here's what I am doing. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm doing. It's about America. It's about baseball. It's about feeling good. It's about all these kinds of things. And please, please, please let me use this song. And months go by. And I finally get a response from his people uh, saying, um, we talked to Bruce, big baseball fan, not a Cubs fan, but he's a big baseball fan. (laughs) And he'd actually seen my John Lennon film and liked it. So he said, yes, you can have it. 
So they gave they gave it to me for an extremely low price, which I for which I uh, am forever grateful. But now, Ken, I'm getting uh, so sorry. So um, we get that uh, uh, the the songwriter we we pay a very low rate, and then Sony has to accept the same rate on MFN for the master recording. So that's all good. But then I'm getting greedy. Now I want to open the film with. Uh, a, a song by another famous artist. Uh, I went after Tom Petty for a song called Running Down a Dream, which is what Cubs fans had been doing for about a hundred years then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and his people could have, couldn't have been less interested. So I got very depressed and uh, 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 put my iPod on all weekend searching for a, another song. And I found one that was even better, more on point and, um, uh, the, the tempo was the same, so I didn't have to change the edit of the opening of the picture. Um, and so I wrote a, another passionate letter to, to the artist's uh, representatives. Um, only 10 days went by. Um, and uh, they said, yes, we like what you're doing. You can have the song, but we have to have the same money as Bruce Springsteen. I said, <laughs> I said, you got it. <laughs> and uh, it was, it was Paul McCartney for a McCartney song, not a Beatles song, one of his solo songs. So you have to get very creative and you have to get very lucky sometimes. But often, Ken, what I'll do when I'm doing a, a documentary on a musician is I'll make a deal uh, with the musician or the family and they own certain music rights or I will include the record label that owns certain rights or both. And by doing that and having them on board, yes, you are serving a few additional masters in that regard, but also uh, you'll get really good prices on the music. So each one's a little different, but always a challenge. Of all of the footage that you take, what percentage do you actually use in a documentary? Ooh, that's another great question. Um, well, I mean, for example, I, I, I'm finishing a doc now that I've not talked about yet, but because it's you, um, we'll talk about it. Um, it's a political thriller with a, a classic rock band at the center of the action. And the band is Blood, Sweat and Tears who had some really big hits in 69, 1969, 1970. They were, they were one of the biggest bands in the world, but something happened to them that year that affected their entire career trajectory. And we are telling that story. So we interviewed about 10 people. Sometimes I'll interview as many as 20. Uh, but for this one, we interviewed uh, 10 people probably shot a good hour, hour and a half with all of them. And maybe they're in it for six, seven minutes. Mm-hmm. So maybe that gives you a little bit of an idea that we you overshoot because in an interview situation, because you're never quite sure what you're going to get, um, how they're going to say it, um, when they're going to say it. And sometimes they will go off on a tangent that's not going to be uh, relevant to what we're doing. Um, and, and so uh, the the ratio of shot footage to what you use sometimes can be quite large. 
Um, what isn't quite so large is the number of photos we use uh, or the footage that we will license to help tell the story um, because that too can be expensive. But uh, once you, you have your framework and your interviewees and you know what they're talking about, then you know, oh, I need a photo of this to illustrate that, or I need some footage of this to illustrate uh, what we're talking about. And so you'll license that footage, but you won't over license. You just will license what it is that you need. Um, when a movie is finished and they have a rough cut, they will usually do a preview audience to get a sense of what works basically for research. Do you do that with a documentary? I don't. Um, it's possible that some do. What I will do is, is have uh, a few uh, friends or acquaintances come in and look at it um, to, to, to give me a sense of, is it working? Is it not working? Um, where, where might we be able to improve? Are we a little long? You know, whatever, something not clear. Um, but, uh, usually it's different than, than, um, a, a, a TV show or, a, um, or a film. Uh, we're not doing audience research because, um, I never start out saying, all right, who, I'm going to make a film for this audience and then I'll tailor it to that. I always start the other way around. What's a great, I'm a story guy. So it's like, what's a great story. Ah, I want to tell that story. Now we'll figure out a, how to get the money and where's the best place for this to live in terms of a broadcaster. So we kind of don't do that, but it'll mostly be, I'll just have a few people in to, to tell me if we have some issues, but mostly um, just going on my own instincts of, am, am I proud of this? Am I happy with this? Do I think it's working? You know, but sometimes you never know. I did a, <clears throat> I did a film on uh, singer-songwriter Harry Nilsson, and we had an entirely different ending on the film. So I don't know about you with your writing, but for me, the openings and the closings are always the hardest. Either they come really early, or it's like squeezing blood out of a stone and they come really late. And so I'd had an ending on this film about Harry that was... It was really nice. It was lyrical. It was poetic, but it wasn't hairy and it, it just wasn't right. So <clears throat> I went back to the transcripts of the interviews that, that we had done and I found what I thought was just the perfect way to end it. So we recut the whole ending, you know, two minutes, two and a half minutes. I think it's really great. It's very hairy. So it's very funny and, and a little outrageous, but I still don't know if it's going to work. And we got accepted um, to the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. And we took it up there and we showed it um, in uh, the Libero Theater, which seats about 700 people. And it was jammed. There were people in the aisles and it was great. And they were, they were with us for the whole film, laughed in the right places, reacted in the right places. That was all nice. But then we get to the ending. And, and there's a line delivered by one of our interviewees that's a little sort of, you wake up and it's like, ooh, is he being funny? Is he being, so what is this? And then, anyway, then this laugh starts in the middle of the theater and expands outward. And suddenly all 700 people are responding the way we wanted. And I looked to my editor and said, you know, that change worked. <laughs> uh, 
But again, that wasn't based on any kind of testing. It was really just based on um, instincts. And uh, so for, for me, as a, uh, my, my own approach as a documentary filmmaker, I'm always much more interested in, in my, my instincts and do we think it's right um, than I am any kind of testing. Well, that documentary of all of your documentaries is my favorite. It's called Who is Harry Nielsen and Why is Everybody Talking About Him? And the thing that's so amazing about that documentary is it's, it, he narrates it himself. <laughs> so it's like from the grave, Harry Nielsen does your, you know, getting Harry Nielsen from the grave. Now that's a get. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we didn't, we were waiting a long time for that one. Um, well, you're nice to say, thank you, Ken. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, what happened was, um, normally I do not use narrators in my films. Usually you have a wide enough array of interview subjects who have very unique ways of speaking, but they're uh, unto themselves really good storytellers. So the way I edit the sound bites together, they are telling the story without a narrator. But in Harry's case, um, his widow, uh, Una, the, just the best, best human being, um, she let me uh, come out to the house and rummage through her drawers. You'll pardon the expression. Uh, they had a lot of stuff around the house and buried um, uh, amidst a lot of other cassettes in, in a far corner of the house. We found a whole batch of cassettes of Harry narrating his own story. He had started what he had hoped would be a written autobiography, but it never got finished but it was him telling his own stories. And uh, it was like, well, we got to use this. This is great. And so that's how that came about. Um, the only other one that's kind of analogous is um, my John Coltrane film. Um, we could have done it without a narrator because we had all these wonderful people telling great stories. But I wanted to have Coltrane himself be part of the film outside of the occasional film clip. The problem was in his lifetime, Coltrane had done no television interviews. There were only a couple of concerts he had done in Europe that there was film on. Uh, but happily he had done a lot of print interviews for newspapers and magazines. So I was able to take a lot of the things he said there and pepper them throughout the film in a way that would illuminate what he might've been thinking or feeling uh, at a particular time in his life. And then, uh, because I'm a relentless uh, and a relentless optimist, uh, I said, I'm going to go get a movie star to, to read these words. Because obviously Coltrane's not around anymore. He had passed away in, in 1967. So I called up a casting director, a friend of mine, uh, acquaintance of mine, I should say, really, Vicki Thomas, who's wonderful. And uh, uh, I said, can you help me on this? She said, oh, I love your docs, of course. She said, send me your top five choices and a paragraph on what you're looking for them to do. And uh, I'll get into it. So I do that and send it to her on a Wednesday. And on Saturday, my wife, Karen and I are uh, up in uh, Sonoma visiting some friends and the phone rings and it's Vicky. And she says, your top choices in needs to talk to you. Here's his phone number. He never answers his phone. 
but he'll get the message and he'll call you back. It's like, okay. So I don't know if this has happened to you, Ken, or any of your podcasters here, but um, you make a call and you're not expecting to get somebody, but you do. Uh huh. Yeah, you're, you're startled. Yeah. You're startled, and your 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 mind and your mouth just go to mush. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, so this this voice that I know very well answers, and yes, oh, uh, uh, hi, it's John Scheinfeld, it's a John Coltrane documentary. Oh, yes, John, right, love John Coltrane, need to see the film. We weren't ready yet, but it's like okay, so. Uh, we send a rough cut a little bit sooner than we should have. Uh, and five days go by, Ken, and I'm just, okay, he hates it, and um, I'm going to have to go to the second choice. But on the fifth day, the phone rings, <clears throat> and um, again, it's this voice I know very well, and he says, it's beautiful, brother. <laughs> when are you coming to Pittsburgh? Because he was in Pittsburgh making a, a film, and it was Denzel Washington. And uh, he loved the film. And uh, so I flew to Pittsburgh and we recorded him speaking the words of John Coltrane. So it can happen any number of ways uh, how you do that. We were really lucky that those tapes of Harry existed. Really lucky that that Denzel was a big John Coltrane fan. Um, uh, but each film is a little different. Some really don't need a narrator. Some some just really need the storytellers. And, and that's how it gets uh, uh, how the story gets across. Now you did something with Jonathan Winters. Oh gosh, that's a long time. That's a blast from the past, Ken. Yeah, we did uh, <clears throat> a PBS thing for him in 2001. One of the first docs I did, and because he's Jonathan, we wanted to not just do an interview with him, but we thought, wouldn't it be fun if we could take him around? He lived, he lived up in Santa Barbara. I said, let's take him to a couple of places in Santa Barbara and just capture him improving with real people. So we, we took him to his bank. We took him to his gas station. And we took him one more place. Um, I can't remember now where it was. Sorry, it's so long ago. Um, and we just filmed him. He walked in and started going. You know, and that's what he does. And we were able to to uh, edit that with a lot of great footage of him um, from the Jack Parr show and Johnny Carson and, and some of his own specials. There's a wonderful, wonderful piece now that I'm thinking about it that he did on the Jack Parr show where uh, Jack hands him a sawed off broomstick. So it's just the wooden handle part of the broom, not mm -hmm. the, the swish part. I remember and Jonathan this. Jonathan goes for seven and a half minutes with this broomstick becoming different things. It's it's a paddle for a canoe. It's an arrow being shot at him by a bunch of Native Americans. It's whatever it is. And it's just the most hysterical thing. And we were able to capture that side of him, which was really fun. So final question. Are your documentaries ever actually done do you look back at your documentaries and just go, okay, uh, I could have done this better. Uh, I don't need to use that. Or when they're put to bed, it's like, okay, Harry Nielsen, check, moving on. <laughs> um, you ask great, great questions, Ken. Um, you know, it's the old cliche of uh, a film is never done, it's abandoned. 
mm-hmm. because you have a deadline, you have to deliver it, it uh, whatever it is, you run out of money, whatever it is, you have to be finished with it. But um, uh, most of them are like children and, and I'm very proud of them and like them. But there's always a moment in almost every one where I'll see it years later or something and I'll say, oh, geez, I wish I would have done that differently. Or why is that in there? I wish I had taken that out. So, yes, there's always moments like that. Uh, but there is that moment where it's like, OK, got to be finished now. And I am proud of it and it's going to work. But you always have that other moment. I mean, wouldn't you say you had that, too? When you oh, I have that. I have that all the time. Yeah, I have that all the time. And uh, I remember on MASH, especially, because we would edit and re-edit and re-edit. And I would be watching the show at home on the air, and I would be making notes like, oh, I think we can, you know, uh, take a few (laughs) seconds out here. (laughs) And then I have to realize, oh, wait, no, it's on the air. (laughs) Well, I went to... Uh, I was at a film festival uh, pre-pandemic and uh, it was one of my older films. And uh, I just, I remember turning to my wife and, and saying, Oh, I've become a much better filmmaker. I wouldn't do that nowadays. <laughs> uh, you know, I got away with it, but, uh, but anyway. Oh, there are I mash episodes that I look at and I go, give me one more day. Just give me <laughs> one day with that script and I can make it so much better. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. And and I think that's a great way to be. You know, you uh, uh, you and I both met people uh, that, shall we say, did not pay that much attention to those kind of details. And it was just like, it's done, finished. I, I'm on to the next thing. And they really don't care. And so it speaks volumes for you that you do care. And I, I feel that's the best way to, to go, that you're really engaged in what you're doing. It isn't just a job. And it's it's something that you're putting your name on and you want it to be the best it can be. I imagine to use an antiquated expression, your Rolodex must just be huge. The <laughs> amount of contacts, the people that you can get. Do you have the Dalai Lama's home phone number? <laughs> no, but I have Richard Gere's home phone number who does know him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so degree of separation. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, you, I'm I, I'm going to end by saying I'm going back to the Harry Nielsen uh, documentary and that Stephen King called that film close to genius. That's oh, how we're going to end. Aren't you nice? Thank you. That was that was great. That was just great that he he wrote that. Didn't know him. Didn't even know he had watched the film. So that was lovely. Yeah, went out and bought his books. I'm sure after that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, who is this guy? <laughs> Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Nice of you to have me, Ken. It was just great. Appreciate it. And there you go. My two-part interview with documentary filmmaker John Scheinfeld. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, Bruce and Jason Miller, and John Wolfert. My email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I am on Twitter at Ken Levine. I showcase my cartoons on uh, Instagram. That is Hollywood and Levine. Please follow me there. Another good interview coming up next week. So you're going to want to be here. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Hollywood and Levine.